Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com app or wherever apps are sold. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. We hope everyone is having a great day. So in today's podcast, we're going to go back to a book that we've talked a lot about on this podcast called 100 Baggers. One of our most popular episodes actually was focused on 100 baggers Mm -hmm. and it's always a lot of fun when we uh, talk about the topic it's something that we always set out to do and before we jump into um, a bunch of 100 baggers i want to analyze on quick fs see if we could look at you know what they looked like um, how they got to 100 bagger status and really try to reverse engineer it i'm going to read off the qualities that he lists in this book okay to obtain the hundred bagger. Um, And the first one was that you have to look for them. Obviously, there is nothing that is groundbreaking about that, but you have to look for a hundred baggers. And uh, I think that just is uh, investing in general. You're constantly looking for ideas. People always ask us all the time, how do you come across ideas? And have you, do you think they just sort of jump out at you sometimes when, you know, you think like, does, do you get a little tinkle? Like, how do you know when it's an interesting idea uh, to do f- further uh, research on? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just get a little true. tinkle. You just, you're like, wait, <laughs> okay. I, I, could, I was watching and we're going to do a podcast on this. It's uh-huh. going to be our, um, our freeform podcast. We're going to talk about Monish Pabrai. He gave okay. a lecture at Boston uh, College. He does it every single year. But one of my favorite quotes from his lecture, it's two hours long. He mm-hmm. basically said, you poke your head around often enough and every now and then you get hit on the head with a two by four. Yeah. And yeah. I've found from my experience that just kind of is, you know, the the case. Yeah. And in that book, I think what they mean is you have to look specifically for with the idea of what could be a hundred bagger. So you can't look at General Electric. You know, mm-hmm. you have to, that's part of it is that you have to think that way that you're looking for a hundred baggers, not just that you're looking at any stock that could go up two times next year. You know? For some reason, whenever I think about General Electric, I think of this tweet that I saw one time when basically this guy said, I sat down with a financial advisor 20 years ago mm-hmm. and he told me to sell my Apple stock and put it in a safe, secure stock such as GE. Mm-hmm. And he had on the chart, Apple stock chart versus GE stock mm-hmm. chart over those uh, past 20 years. So yeah, I think that is, um, you know, yes. Um, number two, growth, growth, and more growth. Um, growth could be good, it could be bad. It's easy sometimes to generate revenue if you cut your costs. Um, you want good growth, which is value-added growth. Growth mm-hmm. is great if you have high returns on equity, high returns on invested capital. You want good growth. Yeah. Anything to add to that? If a bit, if the company's growing fast and it's self-funding, then it's gonna. That's the best way to be a hundred bagger. The only way that it could grow very fast and 
not ever become a hundred bagger is if it needs to raise capital mm-hmm. things like that use debt and then it's just to shares yeah number three lower multiples prefer he says let's say you pay 50 times earnings for a company that generated one dollar in earnings last year think what you need to happen to make it a hundred bagger you need earnings to go up a hundred fold and you need the price to earnings ratio to stay where it is at 50. if the price to earnings ratio falls to 25 then you need earnings to rise 200 fold don't make investing so hard. So the lower multiples are preferred. The price you pay today matters. Mm. A lot of people seem to forget that, but a lot of ideas that you have talked about in the past, you add that into your returns, right? You have, I guess you could say, yeah, we mentioned, a great chance if you, you know, five, six times earnings. Yeah, you mentioned Activision uh, from like 20 years ago. As people won't be surprised, it was that any of you the sales of basically one. Mm-hmm. So. Um, he says number two and number three together get what I call the twin engines of a hundred bagger. So growth and extreme multiple expansion. Um, number yeah. four, economic moats are a necessity. If you ever have a company that's doing great, you want it to have a moat to be resistant to the competition that is going to mm-hmm. come in. Capitalism is brutal. Whenever someone or something is doing great, there's always going to be competition. Mm-hmm. Number five, smaller companies preferred. Yeah. And this was your case when you talked about Fang. You just did the math on, you know, Amazon, Facebook, all these huge companies. And for them to continue to have to grow in the future, they would be bigger than, you know, like the advertising market and sure. you know, stuff like that, like just the economy in general. Yeah. I mean, Facebook can't outgrow the advertising market for long because it will account for much of the total advertising market. Digital advertising has grown faster than traditional for a while, but the overall... Digital is such a big part of overall advertising now that, you know, that's what's going to happen, that they're going to grow at the same rate. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, smaller companies are much, prefer- almost everything. If you look back at these, they're all pretty small to start out. Now, small, we mean, they don't have to be micro caps, but small caps. Sure. They really can't be large caps. Yeah. And when we look at the companies that we're going to look at today, I went through and really found more recent ones okay. so we could have data on them mm-hmm. or at least close to it. You'll see that they were all at least I think under 500 million in market capitalization. So okay. not nano cap, but definitely yeah. you know, smaller. Um, owner operators preferred, you know, Sam Walton at Walmart, Steve Jobs at Apple, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, mm-hmm. just absolute fanatics about their business. It was actually fascinating. In the Monish Pabrai um, lecture he gave, he was talking about why he hates retail. Okay. And he was saying there's no trade secrets in retail. Mm-hmm. There's so much information out there. You can go into your competitors' buildings or in their shops right. and see what they're doing. And I've actually, that's funny because I've been with somebody before that works for a retailer mm. and they had to do, I don't know what they were doing. She, uh, she was a like a merchandiser of some sort. She, yeah. We would go into a bunch of different other, other competitors and see what they're doing and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that's so true. But just like owner operators, absolute fanatics about their business. Monish told a story about Sam Walton. I think they were already... I forget where he was. They were outside of the country and they were in a store and he wanted to see how much space was between the aisles that mm. they had in the store. And he didn't have a ruler. He didn't have a measuring stick or whatever. Mm. So he's literally like, well, I know how tall I am. So he laid across the floor mm-hmm. to measure how long or how wide these aisles were from mm-hmm. each other. So you talk about an absolute fanatic. Mm-hmm. Somebody that is just absolutely <laughs> obsessed with their business. I think he was on vacation, too, yeah. which was the funny part. Mm-hmm. You know, so owner-operators are preferred. Um, uh, and that usually means they have skin in the game. Um, you know, they're just fanatics yeah. about their business. Number seven, 
you need time. Use the coffee can approach as a crutch. Yeah, for a hundred bagger, you definitely need time. Protect we, you from you. Yeah, I, I've talked about it before that I think it's realistic you could aim for a 10 bagger. I think aiming for a hundred bagger is hard because if you expect to do it in less than about 30 years, I think you have to get lucky about some parts of it. Um, not that it can't happen and you can be right and have a hundred bagger in less time than that, but you just some things have to go your way. Um, especially just like the market re-rating it much higher usually because if you just do the math on the percentages and you know most businesses don't grow fast enough for it to happen in any other way so mm-hmm. it will probably take you 30 years on a more traditional hundred bagger that isn't something like um, that goes to a crazy PE I like your rationale as well when we did that video you said maybe it's better to focus on a 10 bagger because for a business to become a hundred bagger it has to become a 10 bagger first yeah, I mean, aim for a 10-bagger in 15 years, then aim for a 10-bagger again in 15 years, you have a 100-bagger in 30 years, yeah. Absolutely. Number eight, you need a really good filter. He says, my own study of 100-baggers shows what a pathetic waste of time this all is. He's just talking about like noise and stuff with the stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, to get over this noise, you first have to understand that stock prices move for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes stocks make huge moves in a month, up or down, and yet the business itself changes more slowly over time. You yeah. have written about, and we've talked about on the podcast, that over time, the returns that you're going to get in a stock is going to approximate the returns that the business is actually generating. Yeah. What was funny is, because of quick FS, mm-hmm. because I've been like messing with this longer-term data, and I really love this, just see these companies, what they look like as they got to okay. you know, point B from point A, that is true. Over time, the mm-hmm. returns really do approximate like the returns on invested capital or the returns that the business actually generates. Yeah. And let's see, let's flip, let's see. And number nine, luck helps. I don't know if we really have to go into that. Number 10, you should be a reluctant seller. And this really goes back to the coffee can portfolio. Um, he talks about, he says, in his book, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, Phil Fisher had a chapter called When to Sell. He summed it up this way. Perhaps the thoughts behind this chapter might be put in a single sentence. If the job has been correctly done when a common stock is purchased, the time to sell is almost never. Yeah. So I thought that was great. That's true. If you're taking a hundred baggers approach, then the time to sell is almost never. Other kinds of investing approaches, you know, you'd be more likely to sell earlier. Yeah. And if you're doing, you know, like the 50 cent dollar approach or maybe a special situation approach, right. of course, you're going to have way more turnover in your business. Right. But you might be aiming at a two times return, not a hundred times return. You know, so mm-hmm. it's different. Um, okay. So first I wanted to go over, let's look at Tractor Supply Company. Are you familiar with it? Yes. I've been inside Tractor Supply. It's ESCO, right? That's is right. It? So yeah, current market their... cap is 15.9 billion. And we can look at the long-term financials. We're using QuickFS. If you want to use QuickFS, tell me came from Focus Compounding. And we can open it up. It's one of my favorite things to do is just look at a bunch of these old companies mm-hmm. and just see, you know, was it did they get like a multiple re-rating? What kind of growth do they have? Because it's interesting. You could look at a company like NBR, yeah. for example, and their top line growth has not been extraordinary at all. But what okay. they have done is they've taken pretty much all of their earnings every single year, every single year and just bought back their own stock. Right. You know, so it's Very like high just, return on capital. Then you I buy think back there's many stock. different ways to get incredible returns over time. Yeah. You know, it's just really understanding what are the variables and 
um, you know, what management's thoughts are. Okay, so we could look at, we could go to ratios is where I like to go. Um, this is from 2000. In the book, Tractor Supply Company, mm-hmm. he started at 1998. We only have it from 2000. Um, uh, but the, years until mm-hmm. 100 bagger for Tractor Supply Company was 12 years, 12.2. Yeah, well, the thing that stands out right away is we talk about revenue and gross profit. Now, there's other numbers, too, that matter, like EBITDA and all that that people focus on. But I always focus on is the revenue and gross profit going up every year. <laughs> This is a very rare case. It's yeah. up every single year for the last couple decades, no matter what the uh, environment. So obviously that can happen in part because you open a lot more stores and things like that. But also then you see that diluted shares only were increasing for part of that period. So they were self-funding. Mm-hmm. So yeah, any growth stock that's that much of a growth stock that funds it all itself, you don't need to know that much more about it. You know it's creating a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, price to earnings, look at that, 4.5. So it had that twin engine uh, that he talked about in mm-hmm. the book, right? So you had extreme growth on the top line, or good enough. My favorite is price to sales. <laughs> yeah, I know, 0. 0.10. Uh, yeah, and it's what, 17 times expansion now? It's probably one point. What's the price to sales today? This is as of the end of 2019, um, 1.32. 1.32, okay. We can see where we're at today. So um, 1.6, okay. Yeah. yeah, or 1.7, I guess, if you leveraged. So, yeah, and that's a leverage number. So, yeah, that's 17 times. So, 17 times of your return comes from that. So, you only need about five, you only need a five, six X return in the actual business if you get 17 times return in the sales. So, buying very cheap and having it go up is helpful. You know, the fascinating thing is so you go from 75 million, Jeff, to 2 yeah. billion mm-hmm. in like what, five years. And then the stock goes back to about 1.3 billion. Yeah. How many people would have held on, right? Now that was 2000, the world was coming in. I don't think anyone held on to this one because, I mean, the history with this is interesting. It became a very popular stock that people knew about on Wall Street and stuff when it got big. But I think those many of these people had never seen the stores Uh because it took the stores a very long time to get out into places that were not so rural. Um, they're very big in rural places and then they slowly got into less rural places. And I think it was already a popular stock based on its performance before it was actually like a chain that people were very aware of, of the people who are wall street type people investors. So this is one of those examples of like, like you mentioned, Walmart, Walmart's a good example of these kinds of things that can take a while for people to catch onto in the rest of the country because they've never seen them. And here's the other side of the coin, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people talk about one of the hardest things to do in investing is buy on the way up. So how many people would have looked at it from 75 million to 2 billion, or we could even say 75 million to 1.3 billion and say, ah, I missed the move. And then it goes from 1.3 billion up to 11 billion. Yeah. If you look at the point where it had its fastest revenue growth, it also had its fastest growth in its PE ratio. And then the PE ratio came down after that, actually. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's fastest period of growth in revenues, like those three or four years that you have uh, over there in the early 2000s, I guess. And that's when you have the PE multiple expand the most. It expands like five times or something. And then after that, it comes down. And for the most part, doesn't get to a much higher PE ratio. So after that, you're mostly getting revenue growth and stuff. A huge part of this is just a few years in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. This is like five, you know, I mean, you could own it for 25 years, basically, from the time he started calculating it. But it's about five of those years that you really needed to own it if we looked at a stock chart. And the fascinating thing, though, is, right, you could go to, what is this, 2007, 2008. Well, the recession, again, made it available at a decent price. But see, now, if you look at it outside of recessions, it seems to be a pretty expensive stock. Not a cheap stock, but like in line with a premier retail you know, sure. like a retailer that they like a lot. Sure, so like solid consider growth. one of the best retailers, yeah. So you have, just seem to have these opportunities when there's a recession, yeah. 
because if you look at it, the lowest PE and price to sales it gets to again after that are four times higher mm-hmm. than they were at the beginning of the period. So you have an issue where the stock is four times more expensive at all time at the bottom of recessions and things than it was uh, 20 years ago. So discovering it when it, you know, is a micro cap, it was $75 million stock then. Mm-hmm. Uh, once it became a billion dollar stock, you never again have it. I mean, you're paying four times more. So that's kind of the thing about why it can be better to buy micro caps than bigger cap stocks is once this one crossed a billion, it was four times more expensive at its cheap moments, which weren't bad times to buy. It wasn't bad to buy it at 14 times earnings or something. Um, when it's like more proven. When it's growing like 10% and it's proven. But the you could have bought it when it was growing, a, when it was the same company growing that same rate, but it was one fourth the price, you know? How many, pe- how many people would have purchased it though back in 2000, right? Just looking at their... If you lived in the country, I think you would have. Really? Yeah. This is a very dominant retail I mean, out there. It's profitable on co- that income margin. It's a completely margins. different like business model. It's very... Um, I think if you had seen it up close the way that I saw like village supermarket shop, right. And stuff, then you'd have an awareness of what it was and how strong its position would be and all those sorts of things. So you get an idea for that. This was definitely a situation where let's say you did read the 10 K and you went and kicked the tires, went and visited the facilities, maybe talked to mm-hmm. the gr- general managers. I think you could have had a pretty significant edge, you know, a company like that at 75 million. Yeah. I think I would have had to visit. Because I think without seeing it in the places that it was, I wouldn't have a good understanding of it. Just I read some annual reports of it and stuff. So I think just reading it, if you're not living in a rural area, I don't think the business model and stuff would have made a lot of sense what it is. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, that's always a, an interesting one to, to look at. We can look at a company that um, isn't even public anymore, but we could go back with their data. And that is Keurig, Green Mountain, Inc. Well, aren't... GMCR. Okay, but didn't they merge with Dr. Pepper? Is that what it was? But we can look at their data before that. Well, what's Dr. Pepper Keurig? Oh, so yeah, actually, no, you're right. They did. They did merge with them. Yeah. Okay, but I mean, that is this. There's no this data ends in 2015. Yeah, I know, but it was still we could still get the data of it going from okay. being a hundred bagger. Yeah. Um, because like in the market capitalization in 1996, that's nice. We have data going back that far. 23 mm-hmm. million. Yeah. And uh, this is a super hot stock. Oh, so yeah. this is. I remember Einhorn was short this company. I'm pretty sure. This is a fascinating one. This is like a Tesla type thing. You could check it out. Say, oh, I think the product's good or whatever. Or Celsius, we talked about. I think the product's good or whatever. But it like was insanely popular from pretty early on. So we're gonna see the period where it was. Where I'm curious when it wasn't very popular. Um, I mean, look at this. It never right here, wasn't right? very popular. Price to sales was always very high. This was always a popular stock. Look at though; it goes from eight hundred two million market cap to nine hundred fifty seven market cap to three point two billion. Yeah, but and then to fourteen point three billion. Even as a micro cap, so it was a micro cap for a very long time. But if you look, even as a micro cap, it um, it actually has very high. Uh, I mean, compared to what we just looked at, it has high price to sales. So like. Um, Compared to the business, Tractor Supply Company was a much bigger business, much more overlooked. Whereas, you know, you're seeing here, like, where does it start? It goes, price to sales goes over one back in, I mean, you would have to be pretty early. 2001. Okay. So I'm going to say, like, before 2003, you would have had to get into, there, there was one year that gets a little expensive for the first time. But after that, it's always not cheap um i guess so but bef- this is a m- cheap overlooked micro cap i guess you could say before 2003 
something like that. It's mm-hmm. definitely not at any point after 2003. Even when it's a pretty small stock, it looks to me like a pretty popular stock. EBITDA per share, revenue per share, operating income per share. Everything went up over the time. Yeah, let's see. Does it follow them? So it has some things that are obvious. So one is, which we talked about with Celsius, it has good gross margins. And yeah. this is solid gross margins that you expect for like a food or beverage company. It's hitting those numbers already early on. In fact, it's hitting EBITDA numbers already pretty early on. Which is very, I mean, EBITDA numbers, that's pretty impressive for a micro cap, especially at like 20 or 30 million. But gross margin, that's definitely the best yeah. indication of that, hey, the business actually works. Right. But like a 40% gross margin, 12% EBITDA margin or something is normal for a business um, that's multi-billion dollar business in, in like beverage and stuff. So they were hitting that already right away. Um, obviously they didn't have meaningful free cash flow and stuff while they were trying to grow so fast, but you then look up at like, if you go a little bit higher up to the growth numbers, I guess, or where's the growth numbers year over year growth lower. Yeah. Um, it does also follow the same pattern that I talked about, which is that you have revenue and gross profit growing each year. Mm-hmm. Um, you want revenue and gross profit growing each year and you want, um, it to be self-funding. And while this didn't really generate free cash flow, it was basically self-funding. If we can see the diluted shares were growing slowly, you know, I mean, for that kind of growth, that's fast for the kind of company we're interested in usually, but not insane. It's one to 2% a year during most of the like overlooked period I was talking about. It actually gets higher later, which isn't surprising when the shares were more <laughs> valuable. They sure. started diluting them a lot more, which is good. I mean, that that's fine. That When they got a higher multiple on, they diluted more. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So you have consistent growth in revenue and gross profit. And it's not crazy growth, actually. This is what might surprise people. I mean, even this stock, which I'm talking about as being a very popular kind of whatever stock, through much of the period that would have had good returns, you got 20% type growth rates. Occasionally, you hit 50. Later on, there's this you know period where you hit very fast growth. But for the most part, you take any three years, they're very fast growth, but it's not like... Um, it's not like uh, viral type growth. Mm-hmm. This is actually growth more in line with you know fast growth companies of the past. One thing I love to do is go back and see that inflection point of mm-hmm. when it's you know like okay look twenty three million dollar market cap thirty five million then eighteen thirty three blah 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 but the biggest jump right you could look at it, it goes from like eight hundred or two hundred eighty one million to eight hundred two million within a year and then okay. 957 and then 3.2 billion. That's part of the difficulty of the holding on thing with how these stocks go. I mean, but look at right there, that's when they had that 51% revenue growth. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Gross profit grew by 60%. Right. And people were expecting. And so is it really when that operating leverage is really starting to kick in? As you can see, their gross profit, EBITDA, everything just starts to explode higher. Was What happened in this year, 2007, that made it just go haywire? Um, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously they did some, uh, if we see, they did something with their, um, equity with what, uh, because you can tell that their price to book, they went to negative equity at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Price to tangible book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so something's changed there, but in, in general, I would say, um, part of it is that the PE is already popular by mm-hmm. that point, but not crazy. I'm not going to suggest this as a thing for people to buy if they, but if they're looking for an inflection point, generally buying a stock that's like five times earnings or 10 times earnings or whatever that is totally undiscovered is not going to go up very fast. What's going to happen is if you find a stock that's really a fast grower that's at 20 or 30 times earnings and already has uh, 
higher share turnover and stuff, that's possible that you're going to get that huge uh, growth. Don't buy things. See where it ends this period. It starts having a P of like 70 and stuff. Don't buy those. That's what we're talking about with the the hundred baggers. Yeah. Even growth investors have to avoid things with 70 P's. But if you can find things that now have 20 P's and are kind of popular and whatever, you are more likely to get those inflection things. Yeah. I mean, look at, so it goes from a 70 P to 10 market cap goes from 14.3 billion to 3.6. Yeah. The part would be Smoked. rough. Yeah. Yeah. You're back. So you'd be back to where you were a couple years before you, but I mean, you'd still be three times where you were four years ago, but you'd mm-hmm. all, but if you got in late, then you're down 75 or percent or more. Yeah. It's just interesting because this whole idea of coffee, the coffee can, it's, it saves you from you because businesses are not linear. They don't mm-hmm. grow 15% a year. They don't grow 20% a year forever. You know, sort of like this steady state into the future. It doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. But if you, even from the beginning, held on, you still ended up with a, a great result. But I just always find it fascinating to see when that, I mean, they were already over the hump, right? But it just goes from a $957 million market cap to $3.2 billion. Yeah, as long as, this one, as long as you held for a few years, as long as you never got in and out fast, you would have done okay um except for a few moments and those moments honestly you should have known not to buy then just because the price was crazy yeah so if you just i mean you never had to pay a low price for keurig all you had to do was i like the business buy it hold it for a few years because occasionally you're down 50 percent for one year if you look at it but you're not ever down 50 percent or something after three years unless you happen to buy and pay 70 times earnings or something that is just not acceptable, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, what if you had margin on that and you're down 50%? Well, hopefully you had a lot of other stocks <laughs> you didn't have on margin or else you would have sold out. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like uh, Disney and is it the Bass Brothers yeah. or the Hunts? Uh, Bass, right? Bass Family. Yeah, Bass yeah, family? yeah, yeah. They, they were in... Uh, they used margin, yeah. Fort Worth. Um, uh, let's but to be fair, they it was worse than that. They had used margin with... Um, making internet investments yeah that's true so they didn't just stick to disney things yeah which screwed everybody else too at the company because think if you hold the stock and somebody's having to yes. just, just get out sell just that. to yeah. dump it mm-hmm. and let's say you have some sort of collateral there or something now mm-hmm. you're you know it's catastrophic we can look at booking company okay. that you love this was a business that you said you if you're looking for Companies over $10 billion, you would look very hard at booking. Yes, that's correct. I don't know if it's super cheap now compared to what risks it faces now, which are pretty severe, but it's a very good company in the long run. And it's one of those I picked. I mean, we could look at some of the things that I picked years ago for uh, like irrespective of price. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a thing for Guru Focus and one of the problems was it is kind of picked things. It was an automatic screener that I had to write things about. And so it picked things that were, I would say, too expensive for me to suggest. But they were things like um, Boston Beer, uh, Waters, Exponent, um, Ball, some stocks like that, mm-hmm. and a Copart. And uh, some of those are like the kind of thing that could be more like your 100 bagger. Boston Beer fits the profile of like a 100 bagger. Um, Why is that? Well, the product was successful from very early on. So we're talking about like Keurig and things like that. So you could, and, and tractor supply, which if you had visited one and stuff, you could tell it was very successful. So you could have the product, you could see where it was and all that. Um, certainly if you had been in the Boston area, you would have seen it very early, but sure. even later than that. Um, and the unit economics and stuff were really good and it hadn't covered a lot of the country. Uh, but it was a pretty popular stock pretty early on. 
and it has very wide swings. And I remember some people weren't happy that I picked it. Well, um, we'll look at that after this company yeah. then. Um, okay, so back in 2000, it has a $239 million market cap. Of course, this, we're just we're really just picking this because that's as far back as it goes. Yeah. Of course, that was... But it was price line, so there was no, there was, it, it wasn't earning any money or anything back then, so. Correct. Um, uh, price to sales, 0. Mm-hmm. 0.19, but we started with a $239 million market cap mm-hmm. to today at $85 billion. So this is an interesting one. It's one of these weird ones where it has a period of poor growth, but in general had extremely high growth and also had already collapsed. So this is the, you've never seen anything like this, cause it, but if, unless you live through the tech bubble. Uh, revenue grew by like triple digits at the same time that price to sales was incredibly low. The sure. stock was down by a huge amount. It was a totally unpopular stock. You've never seen a up 100% uh, growth stock that everyone's selling, but that's how the tech bubble ended is that everything was doubling their sales, but their market caps were having. And they're still expensive yeah. even after that happened. Um, so yeah, a popular you know um, stock in the 90s, which we don't have listed here, but then becomes... Um, a recovery after that when it comes it gets into a totally different business because now it's called booking but yeah at so, one point their price of sales got up to about nine times but other than that okay. their pe was never it's not like it's amazon no uh that's why i liked it honestly i thought when people asked and stuff about it, if you can see uh in the what period let's see let's go to scroll up a little bit so i can see maybe 2007 2006 even 2006 yeah the last 15 years um until very recently, it was growing at a very high growth rate uh, in terms of revenue, gross profit, EBITDA, all the things you would look at. It was growing at a very high rate of, you know, maybe 15 to 35% or something in any given year, mm-hmm. which is very good growth rate. Absolutely. And it's year after year. And yet, like you said, it's not an insane multiple. Like if you look at the P multiples, for instance, throughout much of that period, it's not crazy. No. That's so, what's surprising to me. Okay, maybe early 2003, 2004. But I mean, I don't really use the peg ratio, price to earnings growth as a thing all, all the time. And I think if you used it at extreme measures, it, it wouldn't be very helpful. I mean, 100% growth on 100 PE or like 1% growth on 1 PE, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people use it more for like, you know, the 10 to 20 or whatever. Um, here, the just so, I mean, the, the growth rate, in certainly earnings, but even just stuff like revenue, uh, so even without scale, is growing each year usually by more than the P/E ratio. Mm-hmm. So you have a P/E ratio on the stock of twenty, but you're growing by more than twenty percent a year. Uh, things like that. So yeah, I mean, if you could bet on the growth and stuff, it looks good on a math basis. It looks very strong. I've talked about like free cash flow yield plus growth. It would have looked always strong that way. So there are probably some value investors who actually would buy something like this. Mm-hmm. The problem is, you know, how big can it get? And it turns out it got very, very big. Is that what you would think about with a software company like this? The total addressable market, how big can it get, everything like that? Mm -hmm. And in fact, I looked at it and thought, and that's why I said that it would be one of the ones I would pick. I think the addressable market's really big uh, still. I think that it, we'll see if it gets big in other continents as much as it where it is now. But I still, I still think the market for what it does could double in like 20 years because I think eventually all hotel booking can be online. And now there's still a huge amount of that's done by phone. So got it. You can look at uh, Boston beer really quick. Yeah, definitely not one I would say is exciting now at today's price. 
Um, oh, yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah, but this happens all the time. So it has these periods for no reason that I can discern. It has to do with the popularity, the fashion of it or whatever, of short-term expectations. This has, like, no good shareholder base or something. I don't know what the story is here. Um, but it reacts very extremely. So, for instance, from when I picked it to now, it went down a bunch. But it's up more than five times, the stock, in, you know, 10 years or whatever. Um from that time and that was with it being down big for a long time um and so when i was saying some people didn't like it it's not that they didn't like the business mm -hmm. that i picked the business because this was a buffett munger type screener it was on that screener I yeah yeah remember that. no no i had to use pick stocks off that screener so that's one of the ones i picked um so it was a buffett munger screener but what some of the people didn't like is the stock so they're just looking at the chart and stuff. They're like, no, this is too volatile. This is, it wasn't the business. It was oh, just so the, the stock. stock was it was the them. stock was the problem. Yeah. If you look at the business, this is not a business to me. That's ever, um, those gross margins. Yeah. Right. Even from early on, they're superior. They're very state. They're, they're fairly stable gross margins. I'd say so. And they're, um, yeah. And EBITDA margin is pretty stable too. Uh, operating margin, as you can see, generates free cash flow almost all the time. They do have a thing where there's if there's difficulty selling through, and that's obviously what happened in 2008. Is um, sometimes they're they don't control this that much, but sometimes the distributors and stuff will buy too much from them, and so liquor stores will get overstuffed with inventory, and then they have to work through it. So you do sometimes see big revenue jumps year by year, but with liquor things, there's good data on it. So they're a beer company, but there's good data and hard sells is really big for them now. Look at that from 2000 to 2001, 13 PE, amazing mm -hmm. gross margins. Yeah. So if you look, let's see what, and what happened with the price, the price went from 147 to 280 million. Actually the price went from eight to a thousand. So I guess it's a hundred, it's a hundred bagger now. Mm -hmm. So this yeah. is a hundred bagger. So I said, so I'm not cheating on the stuff we're looking at. It's a hundred bagger now. Um, so if you look, but there's a period that wasn't very good performance. If we go back, like I said, like eight years or whatever, when I was, what, however long it was that like I was, when I picked it that way, yeah. And it became very unpopular um, because I said it's too expensive and stuff. And that proved to be true because it did contract with the, um, the PE multiple. But if you look at what things attracted me to it, right? So we could look at the year over year numbers. So some of the things that attracted me are... Um, revenue and gross profit grew in most years with some problems in certain years, but very few years. Also, I had access to data that's more informative, which is you get data on volume and pricing, but also sometimes you get sell-through data. So where do you get that data? Oh, well, they had in their annual report. Okay. The, beer companies and stuff, and they're a small one, so they will give you lots of data on it, like small in terms of number of brands. So they give you lots of data. So they gave the actual number in terms of like barrels or cases, uh, different companies use different uh, volume measures. But so I got the volume number and the price number. And I actually took that going all the way back to the 1990s on Edgar and stuff, going through the, all their past filings. So I got an idea of how much they actually were increasing volume and how much pricing. Because one of my concerns is, were they actually able to increase pricing at all or was it not really increasing pricing? That would be a bit more of a problem if it was just volume increases. Um so not that volume increases are bad, but then it gives you the sign of, is there a problem where this company can't actually increase pricing? Um, so that was one way of looking at it. The other way, which is important for the long-term consistency to me, is sell-through data. So I don't care if the company's customers bought too much of the product and then had to dump it. Um, but I mean, like had to do promotions and things to move it. Um, 
and not order a lot after that. I'm worried about the actual sell through the the end user, right? So like, were they selling more beer on average? It was what was their market share like each year? The best I could guess. Um, and it was less volatile than the company's reported results. So the company's reported results, I felt understated that the brand was continually gaining some traction that way. And then, you know, things like learning about the, the um, founder of the company. So at that point, they hadn't written, he hadn't written his book, but I did read the annual reports and things and you get a little bit more of a feel for how they think about the business and everything. They kept experimenting, trying out new things. You figure eventually they'll hit something that way. Angry Orchard didn't work for them at first. No. They shut it down and then they start, I think they rebranded it or something. And mm-hmm. They had a bunch of things that were like that. Yeah. And then, like a venture capitalist, or I guess in the venture world, they're like, if your launch doesn't work, just shut it down and relaunch a different time. Yeah. Rebrand and re- relaunch. Yeah. So if we look on this one, different from other ones, one of the big things is, um, let's see what size they were in 2000. So they were micro cap in 2000, but they were already not diluting. And in fact, almost never diluting their shares and sometimes buying it back. Impressive for a micro cap. Yeah. In fact, they bought it back heavily in a few years. Um, they were incredibly profitable if we look because so part of it is they made a mistake, which they talk about in the book. He bought an actual brewery mm-hmm. when they didn't have to. They could it on contract brewing. But the thing is, the brewery business is very has incredible economies of scale so that once you own a brewery, the if you want to own a brewery to launch a brand, your problem would be your brand would be way too small versus what it would cost um, to operate the brewery. So your unit cost would be really high. But then after that point, you really don't need to have, um, I mean, it's not like you have a fresh bakery delivering bread to people. Mm-hmm. You are making a product that you can have shipped all around the country and stuff from basically one brewery. So you have your economies of scale for a long time. So your gross margins and stuff can increase if you don't do much of anything else. And if we look, their margins were very high at first. And then I think they did the contract brewing thing and stuff that brought it down a little bit, but they got back to the same point. Like this is a company that's capable of having gross margins around 60% at times. Um, its margins have varied from like what, 45, 40, you know, it's in the fifties. Um, EBITDA margins quite capable of, you know, increasing a bunch over time. Uh, that's what happened too. Yeah. But if you look, the, the main thing that we can see here is return on tangible capital employed, right? So the worst years for this were years, like I said, where they probably had too many orders the year before. And you can see this actually, because if you look, their worst year was an 11% return, but the year before was very strong and the year after was very strong, which is a tip off that it's probably people buying too much of your inventory because then they bought too much the year before, which gave you unusually high returns. And then if they don't buy any in one year, you know, they're buying very little from you, then they have to make up for it the next year. So that's kind of the pattern you see. So putting aside that one year, which I think is unfair, we're talking about like, you know, there's a couple years with like 15, but otherwise we're talking about years of 20 to 40% type returns on tangible capital. And so, and then they were willing to buy back stock and do all that. So they weren't getting over, um, capitalized. Look at their revenue per share. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So revenue per share was like a 10 bag. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But actually they did, their own revenue wasn't up by that much. You yeah, know, that's because they bought back a lot. Of their right. Stock. So the way you think about it is like, okay, how much can volume grow? They had, I think maybe when I looked at them 10 years ago or something, they probably had about 2% of the market for beer by volume, though probably more by dollar amount, but say it's 2%, the leader, you know, I, if we started in the 2000 period, they probably have one or 2% market share or less. The leader probably has 50%. So you think, okay, there's someone 50 times your size in this industry. Um, 
how far can you grow? Maybe you could grow 10 times over time, you know, if someone's 50 times bigger than you. And then you think like price, like could you grow as fast as inflation? Uh, and then you think share account, like would this company buy back shares and stuff? And the answer is it would, it was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's obviously helpful. Uh, it's again, though, pretty high growth, right? So if we look, it's not remarkably high growth, but I consider that a growth company. Yeah. I know growth investors would be like all eh. over the place, but normally um, very positive. Well, there's a few negative years, mm-hmm. right? So there's like a f- in that period with the revenue, there's like four negative years, same with gross profit. They're very low negative years. And again, I think that's overstocking because if you look like, I know it sounds negative, but if we look, so people will be like, oh, my gross profit's down 3%, but your gross profit was up 15% the year before and 16% the year after. I mean, if we, I like doing like a rolling three-year period. Yeah. And if you do a rolling three-year period, this company is always bigger three years later, basically. It out. Yeah. Especially because you, can, if you're manufacturing something, people will buy it and then they could be overstocked with it and they have to sell it down, you know, or there's cyclicality that way and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I like doing that. But yeah, so this is technically a hundred bagger now. Not a stock I would touch today because I think the price went crazy recently, right? Oh, did it? Of the stock price. It, I think the stock price has gone crazy in reaction to hard seltzer, yeah. Got it. Um, let's see. We can look at last one. This company was a hundred bagger in. Yeah, this says the eleven years. EV to EBITDA is fifty five. Oh yeah, so it's a bit, yeah. bit high. <laughs> Illumina, which maybe that's not. Oh, yeah, another right, right ticker. So. Let's see what we come up with. Use the second ticker. Yeah. Oh, so you have to go one. back. Yeah, keep going back. Currently, forty-seven billion dollar company. Mm-hmm. What do they do? Pharma, biotech, yeah. stuff like that. There's a lot of hundred baggers that do that kind of there thing. There are. Yeah. If you look many years ago, there were a lot that were commodity related. So, because there had been inflation, so that caused the commodity related ones to do well. So, if we've been looking in the book that he based this one on, this book's hundred baggers, which is based on um, hundred to one in the stock market. Mm-hmm. So, you go back to that book. There's a lot on it that are things like, you know, Timberland companies and stuff like that. And the reason for it is the um, gold things, whatever. And the reason for it is that the um, there have been a lot of inflation, right? So same sort of thing here. There have been a period of, you know, biotech and stuff like that where they have a few that are very successful. Now, obviously, they have a bunch that are not so successful. So you have to pick the right one. Yeah, look at I don't it. know how to do in that group. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. 2002, 2003, 110 million, $232 million market cap, all the way up to 47 billion today mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Absolutely crazy. Now, this company, right, biotech, you just get insane top line revenue growth, as you can see, which really propelled it forward. Yeah, it's very uneven growth, too. If you mm-hmm. look, it's incredibly unstable compared to the companies we talked about. It is positive in every year, but the volatility is incredible. Um, you have periods where you triple revenue and then you have other periods that are like, you know, you're up 15% or something. So very unstable. And then diluted share count, not self-funding at all. Do you think actual actual like product companies, consumer businesses are probably a lot easier to predict the future or the potentialness of a 100 bagger because i mean looking at a company like this that's Mm -hmm. doing stuff in like medicine and everything like that i i don't 
I would probably just put this in the too hard pile uh, right away. <laughs> I think the easiest way to find a hundred bagger is to just focus on micro caps and then focus on those business, those products, learn about their products and then buy them just on the basis of the product and the brand, not really the business. So that's example is Boston beer. So at the time, Boston beer, if we go back 20 years or more, um, Boston beer was a micro cap that had a very strong product versus its um, category. So it, for a domestic beer, it was very strong. Now, over time, more competition came in, but it would have been seen as like the best domestic beer. Um, and it had very small market share versus very large market share for the, you know, Budweiser's and Coors and stuff of the world. So the same sort of logic would apply to things like Tesla and stuff, right? But Tesla's not a micro cap. But if you can find a company in which a lot of you have a product that's a small part of a big industry. So you have people say this is a great car. There's a huge car industry that has different kinds of cars and stuff. Um, but it, the problem is that your market cap has to be small enough for that to matter. And when you do the math on some of these things, it's not. That's the th kind of thing with Celsius recently, right? So we talked about Celsius. That works great if you were looking at the stock a year or more ago when it's four times sales or less. You can do the math and say, okay, I can see how this would work. Mm -hmm. But now I don't see how it works. Because my problem is that the product as big as the product category is so celsius is an energy drinks as big as that category is that's tough to overcome 15 times sales that's really tough you have some the, the growth that you have to have to do that is just incredible whereas went back when it was at four times sales or whatever it was at at the bottom there um it's much easier for that to happen where you're, if you're growing 40 or 50 percent a year or something because what you have to factor in is that all these companies end up at basically the same multiples so all of these hundred baggers will eventually become mature companies mm -hmm. you know like let's say apple or whatever apple's mature company um valued as a mature company would be and stuff when buffett bought into it it wasn't valued very highly so that's how people will treat companies like that after they've been hundred baggers so the problem is you have to think that ev to sales is going to come down to you know whatever reasonable level i mean we could put in monster as an example um yeah, so Monsters, well, Monsters EV sales now is up to 10, which mm. is incredible. Um, we could put in Coke and see what they're. Recently written up in Barron's this past weekend. Seven. So all of these are pretty high. I would say you have to at least count on during your holding period that Celsius's multiple will contract by 50%. Mm -hmm. So look at their normal price of sales. It looks like it's always been kind of in the four range, four to five range. But their business has also changed. Uh, for Coke. Yeah. Coke yeah. Coke. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's because their business has changed. I think it's just a stay in the market. Yeah. I, because the same thing happened in 2000. Um, so you'd have to count on like a 50% decrease, mm -hmm. right? In your multiple. And so you just factor that in, which is fine. But when you look at it, you want a product that's pretty big versus a company that's pretty small. And then you need the multiple contraction to be reasonable. That's kind of the way you look at for 100 baggers. I like multiple expansion, uh, but one thing you need with 100 baggers is to avoid contraction. So buying it at 30 times earnings or less could work. Paying more than that isn't going to work because no mature company is ever going to be valued at more than 30 times mm -hmm. P for long. So you want to buy a growth company at a price that's like appropriate for a mature company. Then you get all the growth. That's the idea behind it. You know, if you buy Boston beer at 20 times earnings and it grows by 10% a year or whatever, you get that 10% a year. Um, if you buy it at 50 times earnings, then you don't get that. So you want to at least avoid the contraction. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest problem I see with people hunting for 100 baggers 
they buy things that are too big, right? They've already had a lot of the growth. And then their PE is too high. So they do the math and they say, well, and they calculate that the end period, like it'll have a 75 PE. And they'll say, I'm going to own it for five years. And at the end, I'll sell it for a 75 PE. Yeah, that doesn't happen. If it goes to 25 PE, which is very reasonable, um, then you're going to have a huge contraction. So you, you certainly should that. factor that in if it's a larger company too. Mm-hmm. You don't need to pay I value investors. If it's like a couple hundred million or whatever, okay, you could maybe make the case for a uh, higher PE if there's some significant growth. But I feel like when it gets to that more mature state, like you were talking about, a bigger company like with Apple or whatever, mm-hmm. it starts to be valued more at a mature state. If you notice, all of these are microcaps and none of them have like egregiously high multiples versus the market. It would depend on the year, but many have market type multiples. Mm-hmm. So that's the really hard part. You need to find something that's a micro cap. So basically something that people aren't talking about and isn't selling at a premium PE, but has like a great growing product. That's usually mm-hmm. the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Monish was talking in his lecture. He has personally owned two hunter baggers. I think even before he started his fund, one was mm-hmm. a, company listed in india okay. invested ten thousand, cash out at like 1.3 to 1.5 and then the next one i think he invested a hundred thousand okay cash out like 10 million which is crazy 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 but we're going to talk more about that in our uh freeform podcast so i want to thank everybody so that, much for, yeah that's for the premium premium for, that's just on the correct app. yeah i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with jeff and i today it's always good to go back and see what happened reverse engineer it I love studying the long history of the businesses just to see what happened, right? What did their multiples look like if you were to pay it at that time? At what point would you have sold? Mm-hmm. At what point would the coffee can portfolio saved you and everything like that? So I really enjoy doing that. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the two of us and we will see you in the next podcast.